0: Hello bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I am thrilled to welcome Sébastien Mouret as my guest. Sébastien is European CIS editor at Global Water Intelligence, the leading publisher and events organizer serving the international water industry. In this very special episode, we made a 360 round view of the Veolia attempt to acquire Suez, which could or could not be closing today. Thanks to Sebastian's expertise, we addressed how the two last month might have reshaped the water industry as we know it, how Suez and Veolia quarrel from press release to media appearance, and why you should not believe all of their assertions. Sébastien expressed his doubts, Suez might be able to bring a white knight into play, and he questioned the merger's ability to create a more vigorous champion at all. Meridian's role, hypothetical synergies, shareholder casualing, or unions entering a game that was thoughtfully prepared by Veolia are just some of the many other topics addressed in this incredibly dense episode. Let's wait no more, we start right after this.
1: For more information, visit gfps.com.
0: Hi, Sebastian. Welcome to the show. Thanks for accepting the invitation actually. Let me just start by a physical consideration. Where are you sitting right now?
2: Hi, Antoine. I'm very glad to be on the show. I'm in my dining room in Oxford.
0: So you have this nice little UK accent, which I'm lacking, but (laughs) both of us might have some rest of that French accent. So we're going to try to be understandable for the 100 people, and I'm sure it's going to be better on your side than on mine.
2: (laughs) We always try to do our best.
0: So Sebastian, i I'm extremely glad to have you on that show, because actually almost all my guests so far have cited your company as their go-to when they are looking for information, because you are working for Global Water Intelligence. I am myself a fan of GWI, so uh, that's why I'm so verbose uh, at the beginning, because I'm really happy to have you on the show. But for the people that might be still, I don't know, living in the desert or on the moon, can you pitch Global Water Intelligence?
2: Of course. Global Water Intelligence is a leading source of, kind of business information about the water market on a global scale. So we don't cover only one region of the world. We, we try to cover every single region and that manifests itself in three main kind of outputs from us. The first one historically is GWI Magazine, which is a a monthly magazine that does kind of a roundup of the biggest business news and analysis of the latest trends from around the world. Again, in the water market quite specifically. And then we also have a website called Water Data which is essentially a strategy validation tool. So the idea is that I like to think of it as an encyclopedia of water, essentially. It can tell you how each bit of the water market works, who the main actors are, what the dynamics are, how to access it, and also how it all fits together You know, between countries, between different technologies and user markets when you're talking about industrial water treatment. All of this supported by a really... Massive array of metrics and, and various databases that are all integrated into this one tool. And finally, not so big of a part, you know, not such a big part of what we do right at the moment, but it's events. So, not so much this year again, but normally we organize several events a year, culminating in the Global Water Summit, which is the biggest water event out there. It was supposed to happen in the spring of this year in Madrid. It's been postponed to May 2021, still in Madrid. And I suddenly hope to see you and, and all of your listeners there.
0: So that was the pitch of the company itself. But now I have another question. Let's say I'm asking for a friend. Uh, <laughs> how does one become an editor for a GWI magazine? And of course, as well, for Water Data?
2: Right. So just a note on that is that our content team is completely integrated. We have some people who do research for water data specifically, but everyone who works on the magazine also works on water data. Because obviously, the job on the magazine is to kind of cover the latest developments. And we want to have those latest developments reflected in our kind of more slightly more static coverage on water data to keep it still up to date with what's going on. And in terms of background, I mean, there's quite a great variety of profiles in the GWI content, which makes it a, an actually great place to work at. So most people come, I would say, from a writing background. That's my case, for instance. But we also have data scientists and you know, people who studied STEM subjects, for example, some of whom uh, work on our tech coverage. And you, you know the company isn't exactly small in absolute terms. We have, I think, around 70 people all told. But compared to all the work that we get done, it is not that big. And so there's plenty of opportunity to rise through the ranks fairly quickly.
0: So actually, is your writing background your secret sauce? Or would you say there's something else?
2: (laughs) I would say actually the biggest strength that we have at GWI is the fact that we cover the water market comprehensively. So we aim to cover absolutely all Aspects and so that's you know, in geographic terms. So, for example, I'm the Europe editor, so I focus on Europe and then a bit of Central Asia. We have other regional editors that look at various regions around the world, but we also have people who look at some specific kinds of technologies or some specific industrial end users across all geographies. And so, by just talking to my colleagues. I can have a much deeper understanding of the blind spots that I might have. And so because we are looking at the water market in this very comprehensive way, each detailed piece of coverage is that much more informed and that much more insightful.
0: Actually, this deep knowledge of the sector and this insightful aspect is exactly the reason why I wanted to have this discussion with you today. Because, And that's going to be my not so smooth transition to the deep dive. But, you know, the news just crashed kind of the schedule of this podcast. And uh, usually I'm recording things uh, weeks in advance and lets me much time to edit. So this one, which is in the ear of our listeners right now, is going to be a challenge on the technical end. But there's a good reason for that. It's that we are leaving a drama, which is not happening every day in the water industry. And that drama is the number one in the world, which might acquire the number two in the world, namely... Veolia would be buying Suez. And that went pretty fast when you look at it because just two months ago, NG, which is owning this 30% shares in in Suez, said that they might be considering selling that. So they might be considering keeping it, but also selling it. One month later, Veolia just comes out of the wood and says, Guys, uh, we are going to invest $3 and we are going to buy this out. And today, which is the day of release of this episode, we are the 30th of September, which is supposed to be the day where NG has to take a decision because that's the ultimatum from Veolia. And we're going to see in the next minutes that there might be amendments to that. But right from the beginning, how is it possible that the number one in the world could be buying the number two in the world and that this full decision process takes only two months?
2: First of all, just to be clear for our listeners, we're recording on the 28th, so there might be...
0: Much just, might happen in the next two days, ends, right.
2: <laughs> and, and 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 the time it goes out, there might be new developments again. But yes, it is very fast-paced. I think what's important to bear in mind, just from what you were saying about NG's position in all this, is that at the start of uh, July, they mentioned in relatively vague terms, their kind of reorientation, and that might include divesting from Suez. But at the very end of July, they made it much clearer that they were looking to sell the Suez shares. And this is important for what follows. And I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this later as well. But it means that one of Veolia's strengths at the moment is that then there's no alternative offer. And so that means that they have managed to be kind of a default. But so to get back to the timing, it is very quick, but you have to bear in mind that Veolia has been thinking about this for a very long time. And then within Veolia, Antoine Frérot in particular, in 2012, already, there were informal talks between the two companies, which at the time were actually initiated by Suez to consider a merger. And that collapsed largely because of competition issues. But you know, Obviously, this didn't disappear out from Frérot's memory since he was already CEO then. He's been CEO of Veolia since 2009. And so he has had Suez in his sights for a very long time. And when NG started making noises towards maybe selling their stake in Suez, he jumped on the opportunity. But there had been, I think, a lot of preparation beforehand. And I think you can see that in the level of detail that Veolia went into from the get-go. I mean, it's extremely rare in a kind of M&A attempt like this for the prospective buyer to come out with a ten or twelve-slide PowerPoint detailing exactly what they want to do, what they want to sell, what they want to keep, how much they want to invest, how much they want to kind of uh, save in the long term, etc. So clearly there had been a lot of preparation and including on the angle that Veolia knew very well the questions that this would raise, particularly with the French government and sought to answer those questions immediately before they were even asked and notably on, on the competition front. So on that sense, you know, the two months are just the tip of the iceberg. But in terms of the initial transaction as well, Fast is kind of the point from various point of view. I mean, Antoine Frerot's strategy is clearly to outrun Suez in terms of preparation, so that no one is able to put together a counter offer in time. And you can see that in the fact that he has been refusing adamantly to push his deadline. So that his offer, as you mentioned earlier, expires on at midnight on the thirtieth of September. And he has been pushed by many actors, by Suez, by the government to push that back by at least a few weeks. And he has systematically refused to do it to the point that on Saturday, the economy minister of France tried to get the leaders of Suez and the leaders of Veolia all around the same table at the ministry to kind of hash this out. And Antoine Frérot simply refused to come because he said that, you know, the agenda of the meeting was just to push back the deadline and he was refusing even to discuss it.
0: The fact that they were very nicely prepared, and I also read that uh, they had a very busy summer, actually, because they were actively preparing the financial side and also all the reaction by advance to all kind of objections. So it was very well prepared, but that has also a consequence on the price. Because the offer today from Veolia on the table is for this thirty percent of Suez, so the twenty-nine point nine percent, is at three billion, which would value the full Suez at ten billion. And it is said that NG would expect twenty percent more, but how can they expect twenty percent more if there is only one buyer? Is there any chance that it goes higher, that there's kind of over bid? Or do you think that's the right price for Suez?
2: Well, before we get to what I think. In the last few days, Veolia has actually agreed to up their offer in terms of price because I think it was on the 17th of September, the board of NG published a press release saying, you know, we are rejecting the offer from Veolia at this price, but we're open to having new talks on another price. And so Antoine Frérot has said that he would present a revised offer with a higher price. He didn't say how much higher, but he said higher at some point between now and basically the time that this podcast goes out. (laughs) And uh, so we have yet to see exactly how much he will be offering. There have been very consistent reports that NG is looking for €17 per share compared to Veolia's initial offer, which was €15.5 per share.
0: Ten so percent uh, more.
2: Yeah, certainly seventeen euros per share is what Suez was working towards in mounting a counter offer. Now I'm sure we'll mention this later, but so far they seem to have failed in uh, mounting a counter offer. So it all depends. In terms of what I think, I mean, I think that Suez's leadership made a fairly good point in saying that it was undervaluing the company because. 15.5 euros per share is higher than the current valuation on the stock market. But that is after the massive negative impact that the COVID pandemic has had mm-hmm. on stock price. And you know, if you look at the, at the February stock price, it, it went as high up as 16 euros. If you look at a 17 euro per share, that would put the total value of the company at somewhere around 11.5 billion euros. In one of his columns, GWI's publisher, Christopher Gasson, thought that a private equity buyer could potentially offer up to 20 euros per share, which would uh, put the value at almost 13.5 billion. But that possibility remains, I mean, fairly remote and theoretical at this stage. It very much depends on who's willing to buy is the thing. Clearly, NG is not happy with 15.5. Veolia is revising their offer. We'll see. I mean, I think given the current state of negotiations, 17 euros per share is a likely outcome in terms of, of compromise between NG and Veolia.
0: So that brings me to a question of the valuation of Suez. With the today deal, that would be 10 billion. If it goes 10% up, it's 11 million and maybe 12 or 13, depending on who might be the one to raise the share. But if you compare it, and I'm, I know I'm comparing peers with potatoes, but for the stupid like me, when I see that there is a potential deal between uh, Oracle and TikTok to value TikTok to 60 billion, TikTok doesn't have any assets. I mean, it's just people on the social media app. So, really, I'm comparing peers with potatoes and sorry for that. But when you see on the other end that the number two in the world, in the world of water and waste management, has this valuation of 12, let's say 12 billion it's 20% of TikTok. Does that make sense? And why is there such a gap between this industry and the social media industry?
2: If I wanted to be a bit nitpicky, I would point out that the 60 billion figure is in dollars and the 12 billion is in euros. (laughs) But that doesn't change the order of magnitude. You're right. I mean, uh, I think the discrepancy here has much more to do with something that's kind of intrinsic to the tech sector, where you have kind of Crazy valuations over a very thin, I mean, not only asset base, but even a very thin revenue base. I mean, if you look at, you know, Facebook, when they first made their IPO, they had hardly any revenue at all and they were immediately valued in the billions. I think it's something that's much more to do with the tech sector specifically. Uh, rather than with anything to do with Suez or even with water, you know, if you compare Suez with another kind of big global industrial group like Peugeot Citroën in automotive, for example, I just checked earlier today the market valuation of Peugeot Citroën. It's something like 14 billion euros. So it's very much the same order of magnitude. So yeah, again, I think TikTok, you have to to look at that with a with a tech lens rather than trying to compare that to really any other sector, not just water.
0: So tech is out of this word and the other sectors are more, have more the feet on the ground, that yeah, Makes sense. Yeah. but actually, if you look at this uh, coronavirus times where all the f- various countries are building some stimulus plans just to, to relaunch the economy and they am not talking of uh, second wave or whatever, but all of that is. Always has to do with circular economy, with bringing back this aspect, the focus on environmental services, and all all of that. And and Suez and Vilde are exactly at the heart of it, in the eye of the hurricane, actually. And shouldn't that help Suez to find a white knight that would say, "Hey, that's the opportunity. I can be the one that helps them to get this thirty percent share and and to build something bigger?" Why is it so difficult? for Suez to prepare a second offer to submit to Engie?
2: So this is a bit of a tricky one. I mean, starting with the the economic packages and the focus on the green economy and circular economy, etc. That is going to be favorable to the water and waste sectors as a whole. It's not singling out Suez specifically. Everyone in the sector is going to benefit from it. So in a kind of Suez versus Veolia perspective, It's not really to any one player's advantage. It's just kind of the tide, you know, raising all boats kind of thing. In terms of the difficulties that Suez has found, it's hard to know for sure, of course, because this is all being negotiated behind closed doors. But judging from what I've read and heard, it seems that there's kind of two major problems here. First of all, is that there's not that much kind of private equity floating around in France. There aren't very many kind of big private equity funds that are French. And the fact that the project should be a majority French project is very much a sine qua non condition for the French government. So there's that. And then the ones that you have, Well, one of them is Meridiem, who of course is very much on the Veolia side of this whole thing because they are lined up to buy Suez Water France if Veolia is successful in buying Suez as a whole. So they're kind of out of the equation for Suez, obviously. And then another one is Ardian, which is the largest one that we have in France, really. And Suez did talk to them, but they have refused to commit. And Antin is another one, a smaller one, which was in quite advanced talks with Suez, actually up to very recently. But then on Wednesday, I believe, they pulled out of the talk. And that's incidentally when, or perhaps not coincidentally, the board of Suez pulled out of their hats this little... uh, foundation manoeuvre that I'm sure we'll touch upon later. But basically, one of the likely reasons why all of these investment funds prefer not to commit themselves to Suez is that they don't want to take sides, especially in a context where the government's position is kind of ambiguous. Because you know France is a very important country, it's a very big economic power, but it's The economic circles at the top are a very small world, and you don't really want to be on the wrong side of the government, so
0: to speak. To upset Um, someone. or yeah.
2: Yeah, in terms of future deals. And because the very first voice that we heard from the government in this whole thing was the prime minister, who I think very hastily Um, answer the question from a journalist by saying, oh, yes, this Veolia's project makes sense. It's a very good project. You know, you need to protect jobs, etc. But Mr. Frérot has told me that he will protect all jobs. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's all fine. Obviously, that position has been very heavily qualified by the economy minister who has kind of taken over the lead on this topic since. And he has imposed a much more neutral line. But the impression from those initial comments was very strong. And so there is this sentiment in Paris that the government is more or less on Veolia's side. And so if you're one of the few major investment funds, you don't really want to be on what looks like the losing side of this battle.
0: So actually, let's dive a bit on this political aspect. You mentioned at the very beginning that Veolia had very well prepared their communication and the way they packaged the offer. And it sounds to me like the prime minister maybe trusted a bit blindfully what was said by Veolia. So if you read the first communications of Veolia explaining that if they don't do that move, well, the Chinese might do the move or some US investment funds might be doing that move and that it's a way to to reinforce the strength of France, the industrial strength of France to create a French champion, well, that's appealing to a politician, and that's appealing also to a French patriot of any kind of sort, I guess. Uh, And then if you fact-check that, which is a little bit what happened after, well, you go to a more neutral position, and that's also a bit what came out of the auditions that happened last week. So, do you think that the missing element was this fact-checking and that now politicians try to balance that out and to see, okay, what's myth and what's reality.
2: I think there's a bit of that. I mean, certainly, you know, Antoine Frérot is a very skilled operator in this world and he made sure to take the initiative in talking to all the right people and presenting his project to all the right people in person so that they would hear it, from him and that they would hear it first before, you know, they had time to hear kind of all the counter arguments, which to be honest, Suez was a bit slow in putting out there. I mean, they were very, very silent for the first few days of this while Veolia was going on media frenzy. I mean, I don't think there's been a single week since the initial announcement where Antoine Frérot was on television less than Twice, you know, he's been on television a lot in France over the past few weeks. Whereas Suez has kept very silent because, of course, they're, you know, they're kind of on the back foot, they're forced into a reactive position. And so, in terms of this whole talk of a great national champion fending off the Chinese threat, let's deal with the whole Chinese thing first of all. It's a bit of a scarecrow isn't it? I mean, I think scarecrow, like Chinese scarecrow is actually the term that Bertrand Camus used uh, during the parliamentary hearing. Certainly in the water market, I've noticed that the examples, the concrete examples, very few concrete examples that Antoine Frérot took to kind of substantiate his talk about Chinese competition were all in the waste sector, not really in the water sector. So maybe in the waste sector, it's, much more real, that I'm not sure. But in the water sector, it's really not comparable because I mean, you have very big operator groups inside China, but they're very big because they operate, you know, one or two cities that each have more than a million people. So it's a question of population density, for one, and they're not that active internationally. And then you have a few EPC contractors that are starting to offer some steeper competition for building diesel plants in the Middle East and all that sort of thing. But there is no company in the world from anywhere, really, that has the breadth of offering that Veolia and Suez both have. There's no other company in the world that builds its own technology and builds the plant from the ground up, and can operate it, and can take over concessions, etc. And do all of that in one single company. That doesn't exist. It's only Veolia and Suez, really. And then soar to a lesser extent, because they're only really starting to, that kind of technology, arm together with the acquisition of Minehouse. Mm-hmm. So the threat of competition from China or anywhere, really, on Veolia and Suez, is not that big to start with. And then the idea that doubling in size would be the answer really doesn't make much sense. It's the kind of strategy that makes sense when you're talking about manufacturing. You know, Airbus is a great example of that, where all of the aircraft manufacturers in Europe all became one. And then you have a manufacturer that can export to the entire world. That makes sense. In the service industry, which is what we're talking about, it doesn't really add up because what you end up with is half of the number of bids that you could make with two people, and so half the chances of winning one. And that's just kind of the mathematics of it. But if you look at the political and and almost the psychological aspect of it, having one kind of massive Juggernaut bearing the French standard and going all around the world to export French technology. That sounds fantastic in Paris. But if you're in any other country, what you see is this kind of massive armada of foreigners, essentially. And it doesn't really matter that they're French rather than American or Chinese or anything else. They're foreigners just the same. And, you know, if instead of Two foreigners fighting it out and trying to outbid each other. You have a single foreigner coming and kind of dictating its terms. That doesn't look great from the client's point of view, does it? And so it could very well put fuel on the already growing fire of opposition to private operation of water altogether.
0: So that means that the French super champion is a counterintuitive bad idea. I mean, as you said, the scene from Paris sounds great, but because of the specificity of that market, it doesn't really make sense or it doesn't make more sense than what the two groups are already doing today. I think I've read that on, on one of your papers that there is no contract today that each of them cannot serve from the beginning to the end. So if the both of them combine, it doesn't change much.
2: Certainly, there's no contract that they're too small to bid for.
0: Exactly, yeah. There are
2: contracts that they're losing, obviously. But it's not because they're too small, because no one else is bigger than they are.
0: So that was for the fact-checking of the first wave of arguments from Veolia. But now, if you are coming back to to the French politicians, I don't know how much power they have, actually. But... Coming back to what they are leaving today, all of them, if they are the mayor of a city in France, they are used for 40 years to have these discussions where each time they renew their contract, they have on one end the Veolia bid, on the other end the Suez bid. So I get that they might be neutral because Meridiam might be taking over Suez so that competition might remain somehow unchanged, but I don't see why they would be in favor of this merger. But what's the actual power of the politicians? It said that one of them in particular could be a key deciding guy, which is uh, André Santini, as the, the head of of the biggest utility in France or the biggest municipal utility with, uh, with the CEDIF. What do you think? Does one of them really have the power to do something?
2: So, I mean, it depends which politicians you're talking about. The politicians that have concrete power at this stage are the people in government at the national level. So the ministers, essentially, and to a lesser extent, the parliamentary majority. But, you know, I mean, with the current... I mean, we we, we don't need to get into the details of French politics, but, you know, the parliamentary majority at this point is basically just a rubber stamp for the government. So because they, the government, the French state, has a 23.6% stake in NG, and they have a third of voting rights on the board of directors at NG. So they can very concretely say yes or no to an offer that's being presented to NG. So that's very important. Local elected officials, on the other hand, don't have any direct power at all. And they have, I would say, limited influence. There's quite a few kind of individual mayors that have come out in the press and signed you know, open letters and, and things like that saying that they don't want reduced competition in the marketplace. But the actual association of mayors has published a press release saying that they would remain officially neutral, which in effect, whatever their intentions, in effect is in favor of Veolia because it removes an obstacle that was otherwise expected. And I think that might have something to do with the fact that the president of the mayor's association, who is a a man called François Baroin, who used to be a fairly important minister, he is employed by Barclays to advise the French government on this very transaction. And so I think that's why he was kind of forced into putting out a statement of neutrality for the association.
0: Which, by the way, it's an incredible sign of how much the stars align for Veolia, because NG wants to sell. NG has kind of a crisis of government. Suez is not in a strong position right now to find a white knight. And the political association is a bit binded by the fact that uh, the president of, of that association cannot, due to maybe possible conflict of interest, he, he's not allowed to, to take a strong position on that. So that makes a good opportunity for Vilia. For sure. I mean, the
2: political context is broadly kind of incredibly favorable to Veolia in general. But then, so the people who really matter at this point, I mean, the person who really matters at this point is the Minister of the Economy. Because after kind of initial confusion where you had different ministers speaking in in a kind of uncoordinated fashion about this, you know, we talked about the prime minister speaking kind of off the cuff at a press conference that had nothing to do with this, but he was just asked by a journalist about this. And then you had the labor minister going on television. Again, I think to talk about something different. And at some point she was asked about this deal. And, you know, she said that there was no threat to employment anyway, which I think is debatable. So those kind of initial signals were kind of all over the place and mostly in favor of Villiers. And then the economy minister kind of reined everybody in, very likely said at some point, I'm the only one who's going to be speaking about this from now on, which has been the case. And he has tried to strike a tone of, um, you know, of, of neutrality and saying, you know, we need more time, what matters to us are this, this and this, you know, employment, French capital, and the fact that this shouldn't be a kind of forced marriage to an extent. That's been a, an interesting kind of new new variable that he's introduced into the mix.
0: But so at best what could happen is that his intervention might buy Suez a little bit of time to prepare a new argumentation. And when you look at what they were doing over the past weeks, they had this, this deal which was already signed before of selling Osis to Veolia for 300 million, and they just announced, which was also scheduled, but I have the feeling it was a bit rushed, that they are now selling for 1.1 billion of assets in Germany, Luxembourg, Netherlands and Poland in the waste sector.
2: Yeah, and they've added Sweden to that list since then as well.
0: Okay, so basically they are a bit speeding up their process of selling non-core assets, having this this asset rotation program, which means they have free cash, which is a nice opportunity maybe to buy back their shares or which is also a way to appeal to a potential investor to see, look, we have available cash, which shows that we are not a dead horse. But on the other end, it's also giving uh, an interesting argument to uh, Antoine Frérot, which is saying by now they've sold uh, 13,000 of their 90,000 people working. So if you just give them some more time, who knows what's going to be left in Suez by December. So what do they exactly intend to achieve with this, uh, this sales of, of assets?
2: The thing you have to bear in mind, first of all, and I think this is something that you know Veolia's PR machine is very deliberately ignoring, is the fact that Suez had been planning for a while to sell between 3 and 4 billion euros in assets between 2019 and 2023, right? And by the way, Veolia has an equivalent plan on their side as well, which has been in place, I think, since 2019 as well, or maybe 2018. This predates the acquisition offer. Suez has been accelerating it in response to the acquisition offer. I don't think it's because they intend to buy back their own shares, certainly not all of them. I mean, they don't have the money to do it for a start there. You know they're starting to accelerate this process, but by the time the cash comes in, it will be you know too late, and they're suddenly not going to get the three billion immediately or on anywhere near quick enough. But what their strategy is, and 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 you can see that in in their press release and in the language that they're using is that they want exactly, as you said, to kind of show their shareholders and any potential future shareholder, you know, investor, that they are in a position to generate value for them. And that's why they announced that, you know, the proceeds from those sales would be very largely redistributed to shareholders, which, again, Veolia has been using against Suez in a PR battle. Basically saying, you know, playing outrage and saying, Oh, how dare they, you know, distribute an extra billion euros to their shareholders in the middle of the pandemic, kind of riding the political wave of demonizing shareholders, which always pays off in French politics, but is very ironic coming from Veolia because they you know They're
0: doing that for, for they, the past twenty years. <laughs>
2: exactly. They they've been very good at making sure that their shareholders are happy. And I mean, if you look at even the share performance in the stock markets of Veolia versus Suez over the past, you know, ten years, Veolia has consistently outperformed Suez because they've made sure that you know their dividends are steadily rising, whereas Suez's dividend has been the same for you know years and years. So it, I think, it's very disingenuous of them. But to go back to your main point, I think you know. The point of this acceleration of the asset sale, which again is in, is in reaction to Veolia's attempt at takeover, is more to promise value to investors and maybe to participate in the share buybacks, but to, you know, as a, as a kind of minority, rather than just to generate enough cash to buy all of NG's 32%, because they're not
0: going to be able to do that anyway. So if the intention is to increase the confidence of a potential investor, isn't it kind of a strange initiative to be so supportive to the unions and to even foster the reactions of the union with this always Suez campaign, with the strikes in France saying that out of these synergies that that is saying is seeing in the merger, a part of it has going to be down the line that some jobs are going to be just lost in the merger. So it's kind of a a double take. On one end, you try to please your shareholders so that uh, they get more eager to invest in the company. But on the other end, you're playing with the unions, which we know is, anyways, the image of France. So um, is that double game extremely clever or extremely risky?
2: I mean, I don't think they have much of a choice, is the thing. Right now, Suez doesn't have many allies. And it's grabbing... Allies anywhere it can. And the unions were always going to be opposed to a merger. And management knows it, and they're very glad that they're drumming up support, you know, for an alternative plan. It also plays into their hand that of basically saying, you know, no one at Suez wants this, the company cultures are very different, etc., which Veolia has countered with some valid argument, I think, including using the example of Osis, precisely, which was sold to Veolia very, very recently. And, you know, in the two weeks that passed, really, between the closing of that sale, well, the the announcement of that sale, I should say, and the announcement of Veolia's takeover attempt, the management at Suez was saying to the teams at Osis, you know, you'll be very happy at Veolia. Don't worry about it. They have a very similar culture, It's not going to be a problem for you. And then two weeks later, they completely change tack. And suddenly, you know, they're saying to all Suez employees, you know, Veolia is the enemy. I think that's a fair point that Antoine Frérot is raising, that there's this kind of of double standard. But it's also to be expected that, you know, Suez would fight back using any allies that it finds, including the unions.
0: Now, if we go back to the tactics that they are playing those days, uh, still, if you bear in mind that they want to have the favours of the French government, which is might be on Ali if they they can win some time there. Isn't it curious, the move that they made to take Suez water in France and to put it in a foundation under the rights of the Netherlands, which it's a clever tactics in the sense that the foundation in the Netherlands are pretty strong. And we have seen with, I think it was ArcelorMittal, when there there was this battle between the two big ones that used the same tactics. I mean, Arcelor used the same tactics. So it's proven to have some strength. But if you take, again, your critical eye and you say they are taking the asset, which they pretend to be key and and that they don't want to harm at all, and they put it in a kind of a fiscal paradise one way or the other, and they protect it under the protection of a foreign state, of course, in the European Union as well, but still isn't it also a a strange move? And is it really a move that can block the full situation? Because Veolia could also sell out their own water business. And if they take over fully Suez, well, they will also take over that foundation.
2: Yes. So first of all, there's quite a lot of misinformation circulating about this thing. And I think it's partly, the blame partly rests on Suez because their initial press release was Not very clear and was very easy to kind of be mistaken. Okay. What they actually did was create a foundation under Dutch law because it's a lot easier and a lot quicker to create a foundation under Dutch law than it is to create one in France. And then they transferred one share from Stress Waterfront to that foundation and one share from another subsidiary that they didn't name. Which is also impacted by the Water France activity. I would imagine it's probably De Grémont France or something like that. The foundation holds two shares of those subsidiary companies. Out of, you know, for Suez Water France, it's 42 million shares. So the ownership of the subsidiary has not been transferred to the Netherlands at all. The ownership of the subsidiary remains you know, to 99.9% in the hands of Suez SA, which is, you know, a French company. But the way that the subsidiary companies are structured, they're not an SA. I mean, if you want to go into kind of the specifics of the French company law, they're not a société anonyme, they are a société par action simplifiée. And so that means that a lot of the internal governance of those SAS, as they're called, is left up to their own statutes, and so the way that Suez has written those statutes, it means that even if you hold a single share, you have veto power over things like acquisitions and sales and things like that. So it means that with a transfer of, you know, a completely negligible amount of ownership of actual ownership, it gives the foundation veto power, and the foundation is under Dutch law, but the people actually running the foundation are going to be one Dutch lawyer and one employee representative of Suez and one former employee representative of Suez. So it's, there's no transfer of assets to a tax haven at all. You know, It has absolutely no bearing on anything to do with um, taxes or ownership. It's really just a question of control. So that's the one thing. Then on whether it matters or not, I mean, I think it was a very clever tactical move because it certainly makes Veolia's job harder because basically it forces them to sell off some other ass, you know, Veolia's own water activities, essentially, or at least some of them in order to comply with the antitrust legislation, which they're, they're really not happy with the idea of doing that. But it's not going to change the outcome fully. It's only a tactical move, really, because Suez is fighting a rearguard battle at the moment. They've talked to every single investor that they could find. So far, they have found no one who would commit to being on their side and to mounting a counteroffer. So this is essentially stalling for time and, 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 and kind of, again, making Veolia's life more difficult. Actually, Antoine Frérot has said that Veolia's lawyers had found a way around it. He didn't say what that was. <laughs> Maybe we'll know more by the time this goes out. Uh, I don't know. It's a very clever move, but it's only a tactical move. It's not going to change the outcome realistically.
0: So let's take a minute to talk about the investors on the other side. We've seen that there's not much people on the side of Suez, but there's this one investment group which is on the side of Veolia, which is Meridiam. Meridiam tried in the past to acquire Soar, and they didn't succeed in that. But they seem to be consistent with their willingness to enter the water sector and they would be acquiring Suez au France, or um, maybe now uh, Veolia Water uh, France, but they would be acquiring the part which for antitrust policies has to go out of the merged group if the merger happens. With the scenario, which was on air so far, they would acquire Suez Water France, also a bit of the Circe, I guess, so some research, and maybe a bit of the Grémont, so they might be also able to build stuff. But still, the big strength of Suez so far was that they were able, as you said previously, they were able to commission a plan from A to Z to plan everything, to build everything, to have everything in house, to operate everything in house. And now that little chunk of Suez in France wouldn't have this full array of assets. They wouldn't have Suez WTS providing the equipment. They wouldn't have maybe a part of the digital line and the digital solutions of Suez. So does Meridiam see something out there that we don't see and they they really think that they can gain a competitive edge and become better and preserve their market share? Or is it kind of a clever move from Veolia to say, well, we sell you that. But over the next 20 years, as soon as a contract is up for renewal, we're going to buy back the share that you are buying right now.
2: It's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure what Meridiam's vision is. They've pledged to invest massively in French infrastructure, which is the laudable intention. And they've pledged to keep All of the employees, obviously, they would be inheriting the existing contracts. But in terms of the competitiveness, it's a tough one. Because as you say, I mean, Suez Water France on its own would be cut off from all the engines of innovation within Suez at the moment. They wouldn't have WTS because that's based in the US they wouldn't have, realistically, Suez advanced solutions, which is the kind of driving force of their digital innovation at the moment. Because really, I mean, Veolia would be foolish to let that go. It's probably one of the big reasons why they want to acquire Suez in the first place. It would be very strange for them to sell that back to Meridian alongside with Suez au France. And, you know, I mean, during the parliamentary hearings last week, Bertrand Camus actually said, you know, Degremont France on its own is not profitable. It runs at a loss every single year. It's only profitable at the global level, because you, you have kind of cross pollination.
0: And not even every year, because when they had the big contract in Melbourne and the big troubles associated, really, De Grémont France was, I mean, De as a, as a whole company was in trouble, but it makes sense from an industrial point of view to be part of Suez.
2: Yeah, that's the hazards of the project market, really. But if you take a kind of long-term view, De Grémont is profitable at a global level, but it's never profitable just in France. That's the thing. And again, even as just an operator, it's... Difficult to see what Suez could offer municipal clients in future when it comes to renewing existing contracts or bidding for new contracts, of course, if they're cut off from all of the worldwide innovation. Because I mean, you know, to me, the main reason why Suez and Veolia have been such good competitors on the French market so far is precisely because they have the same sort of structure. They're both global groups that have access to global resources and global innovation. And that's why they have, you know, if you compare that to SOR, for example, which has started expanding internationally relatively recently within the past you know, decade or two and is only now starting to really expand their technology offering they're really far behind even on the French market, even though Sor has decades of experience as an operator in French municipal contracts, just like Suez, just like Veolia, but they don't have that competitive edge of a global innovation network. And so if tomorrow Meridian owns basically a new Lyonnais des eaux without any of the global innovation, I don't think they'll have much of a competitive offering to bring to the table for their clients. The one thing that Meridian seems to be counting on and which might work is access to capital. Because the thing about having a big group which is publicly traded is that shareholders always push for saving costs and not taking risks, etc., and not putting down money for investment or as little as possible because that's extra risk. Whereas Meridiam, as a long-term investor, would be in a position to, and by all accounts has the intention, to put down very large amounts of money for investments in the networks. And so that could play in its favor. But I think they're overestimating the extent to which that investment would be easy to deploy. Because the thing about the municipal market in France, is that there's actually fairly few full concessions. And it's only when you have a full concession that investment capital expenditure is fully up to the private partner. If you have an affirmage, which is the more common type of contract or or just kind of normal operations and, and maintenance contract, then the investment is left up to the city or the agglomeration, the metropole, the public partner. They're still responsible for investment, even when a private partner is operating. And if Meridiam intends to renegotiate contracts to turn them, for example, from an affirmage into a concession, so that they can invest more, which of course would be beneficial to the public partner as well, that has the political downside of making it so that the private partner becomes the legal owner of the assets. And of course, that can be, you know, politically
0: tricky. I think that was one of the defensors of Suez, which is Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who wrote <laughs> that um, he's fully in favor of the fact that they remain separated, but he also wants to dismantle those groups and to take all the employees back to the municipalities and they would be working in the municipalities and, and doing everything themselves, 100-person municipal.
2: Well, of course. And, you know, Philippe Martinez has said the same <laughs> thing. But, you know, I mean, they're not the ones that
0: are going to... It's not going to happen anytime we're soon, in. but but yeah. nevertheless, the, the, trend, the trend is there. So it's difficult to say that uh, there's going to be this shift. And actually, I was reading an interview from Estelle Bracklenov, which is the number two of Veolia, and she gave two facts that to me were opening new questions. She says that Meridian was going to invest 800 millions, and I don't see in what. And the other thing is uh, she also said that Meridian might not limit themselves to France, that once they have this knowledge, they are going to, build Suez back as a phoenix and Suez water France might become Suez water and then Suez and be a competitor to the new merger of Veolia and Suez. So it's like a worm, you cook the worm in two and you have two worms. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I, 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 I mean, that sounds to me, the second part
2: of this sounds to me like wishful thinking. The 800 million is the figure that Meridian themselves have been, you know, floating all around. So that is very much at least their intention. Again, whether they'll be Able to do it is another thing, but going international from the basis of Suez Water France is not something that Thierry Deo, the CEO of Meridian, has talked about himself, at least not publicly. And you know, it sounds like to me. I mean, I, I haven't actually read this interview, so I'm reacting kind of in real time here. But I would say my instinct is to think that this is meant to appease. You know, politicians and regulators and and, and and have them think, no, 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 don't worry, it'll it'll all be fine. There's no threat to competition, either in France or abroad, it's all going to be fine. I mean, it's certainly a possibility. I'm not saying that it's never going to happen, but it's definitely not going to happen in the short term. It's going to take a lot of time if it happens, and there is, you know, a very real possibility that it might not happen as
0: well. Mm-hmm. Actually, in that interview, she also mentioned another point, which is also an open question to me. Veolia is mentioning that they intend to do 500 millions of synergies and economies, and this without cutting one single job. So on one end, uh, if I was working for Suez in the CB21 in Paris, I would be concerned because I guess that maybe in the in the assets out there in the world, you cannot from one day to another cut jobs, but from the corporate end, I don't see why you would have two corporates. But that's one first question. The second thing is she was explaining in the interview that where the 500 million would come from is that there are operational synergies. Like she said uh, that in the UK, the assets that Veolia has have uh, 93% availability when Suez only has 88% availability. Which means that if you take the good practices from Veolia and you transfer them to Suez, you're going to win this five percent availability on the assets, and that's going to make 13 millions. And she also said that the wastewater treatment plants on the other end are better operated by Suez than they are by Veolia. So once again, if you take the best practices and you transfer it from from Suez to Veolia, you're going to improve globally. So that sounds absolutely nice on the paper, but how adding up all those little savings if you can reach them at all? How do you achieve the 500 millions? And do you really believe that no jobs are on the line?
2: I mean, what you have to bear in mind is that this 500 million figure, they announced that from the very start. From the very start of the announcement of their operation, they said we are going to make 500 million in in cost synergies on top of the one billion savings program that each of the two companies has. So, you know, Suez has this Suez 2030 plan that I've mentioned without saying the name before, that says we're going to cut a billion euros in cost by 2023. Veolia has a plan called Impact 2023, which says pretty much exactly the same thing. So each of the two companies was always supposed to save 1 billion on its own. So that's 2 billion. And VODA is saying on top of that, they'll save 500 million. So that's two and a half billion euros saved by 2023. You know, you can optimize the way a wastewater treatment plant works all you like. You can't achieve 2.5 billion euros in savings without cutting at least some salaries. It sounds completely outlandish to me. You know, obviously what this course has been focusing on is that the people on the ground are employed as part of contracts with the municipalities which is of course absolutely true and so there's no reason to think that you know the people actually running utilities be it water wastewater or solid waste utilities are going to lose their job they are by you know all reckoning going to be safe but as you said the question is for the corporate jobs and there are you know there are thousands of them in France and abroad and i find it very hard to believe that Veolia could achieve its target of savings and lose not a single job at the same time. That seems very, very unlikely to me.
0: Actually, it's pretty funny that the wastewater treatment plant come as an example, because the first cost by far on the wastewater treatment plant is personal cost. When you say you try to optimize things on the wastewater treatment plant, it's hard to believe that it's not touching the jobs. Of course, it's not on the short term. But on the long run, the synergies are going to come from automation or whatever could... I mean, it's another debate, which I don't want to enter right now. But I was quite surprised to see that that's the the prime argument. We're going to cut costs because we are becoming so much better. But by the way, I saw that Suez now is not aiming for 1 billion, but 1.2 billion. So I think if they keep winning some time from the government somewhere down the line, they're going to find themselves those synergies. I mean the numbers (laughs) can be made up. Who's going to verify that? I know I'm being a bit sarcastic, but it's a bit, those big numbers. Well, well,
2: hopefully GWI is going to verify it, but it'll be, you know, after (laughs) the fact. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but it's it's complicated because, I don't know, I think we've said as much as, uh, as we can on this. Maybe just one thing that, just to say that Suez management and in particular, Jean-Marc Boursier, who's the CEO of the group and also the head of Suez Water France, he has said that Suez thinks that there's 10,000 jobs on the line, including 4,000 in France. Now, I think that is a bit exaggerated, because those numbers, and you know, Suez has said it themselves, those numbers come from estimates that were made back in 2012. When the merger was initially kind of explored, back in 2012, there was no talk of selling off Suez Water France to you know anyone like Miriam or anything. So those job losses would have included a lot of mashing together of the two corporates and then and kind of functioning on the ground in France, which is not, you know, even if Villa gets their way, is not going to happen this time. So I think that Suez' is. Prediction for job losses is a bit exaggerated, but on the other hand, Veolia's promise that there'll be absolutely zero loss of jobs seems completely unrealistic to
0: me so Sebastian, I have to be a bit cautious of your time at some point, and uh, it, it's a fascinating topic to me, so I could be keeping asking questions for half an hour or an hour pretty easily, but I think it's a drama, so assuming that today is not the last day and that uh, there might be a new offer or a new something. I'm pretty sure that somewhere in the future we might be able to comment on a new element of that drama. So if you don't mind, just uh, I have a last one. And maybe uh, if you appreciated the exercise, I would be very happy to reinvite you on that microphone to speak about that same drama uh, a bit later. But uh, you mentioned that, sorry, just bought uh, Neuhaus, that Dupont is, uh, is buying several companies that, uh, I mean... When you when you go on GWI, let, let, me, let me do some advertising. If you go on GWI Water Data and you, you have a look at your specific section about the merger and acquisition, it's just uh, never ending. There's something new uh, every week. I think the last one was Aliaxis by Kendu. I mean, there are several ones. What is happening in the water sector? Is it something which is really punctual right now because of the COVID or does it have absolutely nothing to do and that was going to happen anyways because having the two biggest companies in the world representing five percent of the world market shows that the market is so fragmented that it has to consolidate at some point?
2: That is, that is a very, very... That was
0: a very broad question.
2: question for and, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think the one thing I can say in a short amount of time is that I don't think it's particularly to do with COVID. I mean, perhaps COVID has accelerated some things. It has certainly slowed down many things. So I don't think it's anything to do particularly with COVID. I mean, if you look at, you know, the reasons why this whole Suisse business emerged in the first place, it's because NG is reorienting towards its core business, which is energy, and that doesn't really come from COVID at all. In order to give a, you know, not just about uh, an answer, not just about what it is not, but about what it is, I think you could dedicate an entire other podcast episode about this. And maybe you might want to to speak to someone who has a more global view of this than I do, because I remain fairly focused on Europe. And I think that to give a properly thorough answer to your question, a global view would be needed.
0: So let me suggest you to keep this idea in a part of your your brain right now. And that could come back in in a couple of minutes, because I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. And Actually, my last question could be an opportunity for you to recommend me someone to to take on this discussion, but no
1: spoiler. It's time for the rapid fire questions.
0: Let me start from the first one. What is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Maybe that doesn't apply fully to your profile but let's see what your take is on on this one.
2: Well, so I guess it all depends what you mean by project, right? The projects that I'm involved in are of a, a very different kind from what it is for most of your guests since my projects mostly involved in, you know researching and writing. I remember one particular article for the magazine which was a lot of fun to put together not only because I got to travel a city that I didn't know before, the city of Aarhus in Denmark, which is a very lovely place, but also because it was about the very start of the procurement process for a new wastewater treatment plant, which aims to be the most innovative wastewater treatment plant in the world. And so it aims to have a modular structure so that you can kind of update it as you go along with the latest technologies, test some technologies directly on it and have full resource recovery. It's a very interesting project. It's supposed to start operations in 2026, so it's still in the early stages, but it's something I've been uh, I've been keeping an eye on, and, and I'm quite looking forward to seeing where it goes.
0: This kind of investigation, is it the, the favorite part of your current job, or you, would you have something else to mention?
2: I know that's what everybody says, but really the people I work with are the favorite part of my job. Uh, I mean, GWI has a really diverse bunch of people all working together from all over the world which is to me it's the environment that i prefer really i mean you know during my studies i i studied in quite a few different countries and the very last year of my studies i was just with french people and i didn't like it very much so yeah having people coming from, (laughs) from exactly from from all over the world kind of coming together and sharing all sorts of different perspectives, you know, obviously on on what we do at work, but also on whatever we happen to be talking about during the lunch break is a really fantastic part of the job.
0: Well, actually, my my next question is really something which was made and written for you. What is the trend to watch out for in the water industry?
2: Yeah, that is very much my job to answer that indeed. Well, I, I can only speak to what's going on in Europe, but I would say Sludge management really is the next big thing in the water sector, and especially, of course, in the wastewater subsector, because there's kind of a chain of reasons why. At the start of it, really, is the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive from the EU, which mandates, you know, since the 90s, has mandated that all cities that are above 10,000 population equivalents should remove nitrogen and phosphorus. That means that most wastewater treatment plants now have some sort of biological removal process, which means that they're generating a lot more sewage sludge than was the case before the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive came into force. Now, historically, that sludge has been, well, in really the olden days, it used to be landfills that is now very much you know, going downhill. But there's also a lot of spreading to agriculture. But that is starting to see some problems with fears of contamination from pollutants, which are sometimes founded, sometimes less so. But it means that there's a reluctance to spread and a push towards phosphorus recovery or nutrient recovery more broadly from the sludge so that you can get the nutrients without having the rest of the sludge, basically. And so you can use that as fertilizer in fields. That is in some kind of key countries like Germany, Switzerland. Sweden is kind of inching towards it. Uh, but it's not quite certain whether they'll make a law about it. It's likely that the next urban wastewater treatment directive, which is in the process of just starting to be revised, will touch upon this as well. And whether or not you have this drive for phosphorus recovery, there is a need everywhere for volume reduction of sludge be it you know drying dewatering all of that stuff for the very simple reason that you know the less water you have inside the sludge the less it costs to run a truck to transport it between places and then there's the final thing about sludge really which is biogas production which is a technologically a very easy way to get energy out of the sludge at the same time as you reduce the volume through anaerobic digestion and that's a kind of easy win for utilities to reduce their carbon footprint, for example.
0: I think that was the most extensive and, and to the other end, the most interesting answer to that question since I'm I'm asking it. So thanks a lot for oh. that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the first time that someone mentions sludge here. I had once uh, someone mentioning the, um, the, the project of the digester in, in Strasbourg, the injection of the biogas in the network. But it's a fascinating topic for sure. The next one is going to be, I guess, more tricky for you because... Uh, What is the thing you care the most when you're working on your new project? And on the other end, what is the one you care the less?
2: Right. So again, I mean, for me, every article is a new project in itself. So I'll try to think, you know, to talk about articles. And then when I start researching an article, what matters most to me really is getting to the bottom of what's going on. You know, there's quite a few business publications out there, not just about water, but about many different topics that basically earn a living by rephrasing or sometimes straight copying press releases. That's not what we do at GWI. What we aim to do is to give actual insight into what the news is and, and what it means. It's all about getting to the bottom of what's going on. And I would say the corollary of that is that the thing I care least about when writing an article is how it makes you know company A or company B look. That's not my concern.
0: Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends? And this one is extremely interesting to me because everyone answers GWI to that question, but what is the source of the source?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, to your listeners, I'm definitely going to recommend GWI magazine <laughs> to keep of up with the news and, and GWI water data to kind of have the broader overview of market dynamics and then market access market metrics all of that in terms of the sources we look at well there's a lot of scouring of all sorts of various publications you know the regional press is a surprising gold mine sometimes to keep up with individual projects but really the core of our added value is that we talk to people We talk to the people who are actually involved in the projects, in the stories, and we try to get their insight. And so that's what makes the added value of GWI, is that what you will get in GWI, you won't get from just reading what we read, because you would also have to talk to the people we talk to.
0: That's a very good one. So now I come back to the answer that I asked you to save previously, which is, would you have someone to recommend that we should definitely invite to that same microphone as soon as possible? and maybe? To discuss this trend of consolidation within the water sector.
2: Well, I think, you know, many of my colleagues would make great guests on your show because again, there's all sorts of specializations within GWI and, and you know, I know a lot about the European market, but there's a lot of topics that I know not very much about, but my colleagues know a hell of a lot about. And so, you know, depending on the topic you want to touch upon, there's a variety of people that I could recommend you. I think on the kind of big picture, you know, the people that are heading our editorial team such as you know Ian Elkins or Christopher Gasson would be would be very interesting to, to talk to potentially, if they have the time, because they are very busy people.
0: So I'll take my chance. <laughs> well, as I said, we just addressed a drama which uh, might end today or which might, let me take a bet, not end today. So uh, if you have some time for for me down the line, maybe we can have a follow-up episode where we sort that out once everything is settled and whether the merger happens or doesn't happen. So I don't know if uh, you would be interested, but on my end, that would be for sure interesting to talk with you again.
2: Yes, I'd love to. I mean, I'm definitely going to, to keep following what's going on. You know, if I may hazard a prognosis at this point, it's, you know, there are obstacles to Veolia getting what it wants, but ultimately the fact remains that they're the only ones who've submitted an offer. And Suez doesn't look like it's going to submit an alternative offer. So it looks like VODI is probably going to get their way in the end, kind of by default. And personally, for all the reasons that we've talked about, you know, mostly to do with competition at a global level, and also the implications that lack of competition has on innovation, I think that's Bad news for the water market, but it might be inevitable at this point. We'll see. Maybe when I come back, you will tell me that I've been completely wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I share your impression. So if I was to make a bet today, I would be doing the same bet. So I propose you to take both our bets, we put them in the fridge, and we just (laughs) uh, have a discussion over them when all of that settles down.
2: That sounds good.
0: Thanks a lot, Sebastian. You've been an awesome guest. uh, Thank you for having me. Talk to you soon
1: thanks for listening to don't waste water this podcast was brought to you by gf piping systems loved this episode head over to apple Podcasts to subscribe rate and leave a review see you next time